What's happening, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, on another great episode of the Matt Baxter Show. Check it. We are hanging out with Dave Burkus, who truly, truly, truly is one of the original angel investors. In fact, Dave, I hope you don't take this wrong. You were investing in the angel investment type format before the term angel investment was even around. Dave, you have invested in multiple, like hundreds of, of early stage tech companies, early stage companies, early stage ideas. And it was just absolutely phenomenal to learn from you on this episode. Uh, you dive in kind of through the, the, the history of what venture capital was like, what it you know was like during the height of some of the you know early stage tech investments, and now what it's like now and how it's evolved, how it's changed, how it's all over the place. Folks, if you are a startup out there looking to learn about what it's like to raise your first round of capital, your second round of capital, your third round of capital, all the way to exit, Dave is a man that you definitely want to be following. You should follow his newsletter, read any of his books, or just follow along with everything that he's got going on because he's got such a wealth of knowledge, not only from his own experience, but being one of the first people in this industry and seeing it all the way through for for many, 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 many years. And so Dave, I just want to say a huge shout out and a thank you for being a guest on the show. This was phenomenal phenomenal. I learned a ton. And until next time, because we probably could record weeks and weeks and weeks of content. So Dave, thank you a ton. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode just as much as I did. Dave, thanks for uh, being a guest on the show. Excited to have you. Well, thank you, Matt. Good to be here. Are you, uh, I know, I know you spent a lot of time in California. Are you currently hanging out there now? I'm in my home, my home office in Arcadia, California. Love that. And let me guess, it's probably sunny outside. <laughs> 95 today. I swim every <laughs> single day. Are you uh, are you a pool swimmer, lake swimmer, beach swimmer? What's that look like? I swim 18 to 20 laps a day, every day, seven days a week. Oh my goodness. Good for you. Has that been something you've been doing for a long time or a recent habit or how long you've been doing that for? Many, many years. It is, uh, I'm 80 and this is a way that I keep young. One of the ways. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be taking notes on the other ways because I could use a little bit of that myself. Um, I'm, I'm not the biggest cold water fan, so that usually steers me away. <laughs> I completely agree with you, and I even have a wetsuit for earlier times like uh, April, May, before it gets warm here. So uh, l- let me ask you this real quick, and then we'll, I don't know if we got on the show to talk about swimming, but now I'm fascinated about this. We real quick. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> My when when you're when you're swimming, has it always been more reflective thought or progressive thought? Meaning, are you spending time thinking about the days past or past things? Or are you more spending time thinking about like what's happening in the future, what's going on, kind of in front of you? I treat uh, swimming like cardio, and so I'm really thinking about the next stroke. Uh, I'm really pulling hard when I swim. It's not relaxation at all. <laughs> and further, uh, further reason for me to get in cold water? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> well, Dave, I'd love to. I know you've got an amazing background. Uh, if you're in the startup world, it's impossible not to know your name. Um, and and you've, you've had a huge impact. I'd love if you'd be willing to love just to hear a little bit of the background, share a little bit of your story, whatever you feel comfortable with, obviously. Okay, I don't know how fast I can do this, but I'll try to do it very fast. <laughs> plenty of time. You got plenty of time. <laughs> At the age of 15, uh, I was a nerd, and there weren't many things a nerd could do back in the late 50s. And so I started a record company with a recording studio in the bedroom of my home. Uh, my brother had just gone to college, so I used uh, his bathroom as an echo chamber and uh, registered this company a year later uh, and really went to business. Uh, so advertising and what was then the yellow pages and all the other things that you do, I built that business uh, 
into a business that actually put me through college. And after graduation, I ran it as a full-time business as well. First renting a dining room in an old house in Pasadena, California. And then uh, within three years, having enough money to build an office building, which I did and occupied the ground floor with a recording studio and hired my employees to help. Within three years later, I had uh, outgrown that building that I built, sold it, bought a building in Hollywood, California, and built a record-pressing plant. Uh, I know vinyl is coming back, but at that time, vinyl was king. And uh, continued that business uh, six years out of college. Uh, let's do this right. 1971. So nine years out of college, I took it public. I, I bought the uh, very first mini computer with the screen, programmed it myself, uh, just as a hobbyist. Remember, I'm a nerd. And uh, uh, was able to uh, program really complex programs, manufacturing resource planning, so that every one of the 52 employees knew exactly every day they came in what was about to hit their station, what they had to do, and when it had to be out of there, uh, as well as order entry, invoicing, and all the way through general ledger and payroll. I didn't realize what I was doing. I mean to say I knew what I was doing. I didn't realize the importance of these mini computer programs. But the salespeople for the hardware company did because there was no comparison. So they began bringing in potential clients. And it wasn't uh, long before, in 1974, the clients began offering me uh, six to $10,000 for a piece of the program that I'd written. Occidental Life Insurance offered $10,000 for the inventory control program, which was probably, oh, eight or 9% of all of that I had written. <laughs> and uh, in today's dollars, that's 58,000. <laughs> so, with Of course, but who's counting, right? You've never done that math before. <laughs> oh, yeah. Two offers in the same day, equaling about $100,000 between them. I knew that the record business wasn't where I belonged. So I sold my interest in the public company, got into the computer programming business even before packaging was known, uh, and created 215, uh, we'll call them custom, programs for businesses in Southern California within those first two years. And uh, wow, I mean, that made me relatively rich. We took the penthouse of an office building. That building housed the uh, salespeople and the hardware company on the ground floor. So it was very easy for them to bring the uh, potential customers upstairs. And I probably closed 85% of all the deals they presented to me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> the, first, the first hotel came uh, two years later. Uh, I was in love. Uh, the idea of programming a hotel system and becoming the core of reservations in front office, which had really only been done, as I later found, by two companies in the world before that time really was attractive to me. And so I gave away the 215 customers to my two experienced programmers. That gave them each about $500,000 worth of business a year in the maintenance upgrades and new sales. Yeah, not and a I bad started, little gift to give them. Nicely done. <laughs> all right. And I started in the hotel computer business from scratch. That first business, I did $800,000. The next year, a million six. Year after that, uh, two million four. Four eight, um, twelve one. You're getting the idea. Yeah. Um, Sixteen twenty, and then thirty million when I sold the company. I think we like that growth trajectory. 
And <laughs> this would be about a hundred million today when I sold the company. So uh, that's the business. That hotel com uh, computer business became the largest hotel computer business in the world for a little while. And in 1982, Marriott licensed it for my specialty, which was multiple hotels through lease lines to a single computer system located somewhere. Marriott had the idea of forming a new little chain that they called Courtyard and running them with back offices located in office buildings that served five to 10 hotels each. That was the plan. So uh, I got $3 million for the software, no residuals, a one-time fee. And uh, they had to buy the hardware from me as I was a dealer for the hardware company, MAI. And so in the end, that was about $14 million before I sold the company. The only reason I'm telling that story is that today is 39 years later and Marriott is still using my software that I program <laughs> with six fingers. Uh, today, they call it Fossey. They're trying to replace it for the third time. They have an RFP that they have now closed out. We'll see who gets the uh, award. And uh, lots of people have tried, including, uh, boy, it was Oracle that put, uh, as I understand it, $150 million into making it work and didn't. <laughs> so I'm enjoying telling the story that has no revenue for me, but it is fun to tell after all. Well, it's one of those things you're watching. I mean, that's how you truly know you're watching like beautiful success, that you're not necessarily standing to gain anything now, but you're watching how how robust and sturdy it was. Plus, it's kind of fun to watch somebody throw 150 million to try to solve a problem you created a long time ago. That's oh, kind of that's, that's a cool feeling. <laughs> it is. And Marriott put in the 100 million. I understand trying to make it work. Today, there are 4,000 hotels still using it in North America. They haven't told me how many hotels in Latin America, South America, and EMEA. <laughs> so it's a great story, fun to tell. Makes me feel good. <laughs> that's uh, amazing. So. I took the money from the sale of the company uh, and immediately began what I called resource capitalism because the word angel investing hadn't been invented yet. This was 1993. I wrote a book in 1994 describing what I did. Uh, there were five elements of what I did. I provided the money, of course, but also teaching people how to use corporate time to reduce the overhead, teaching them uh, how to find relationships, which I would provide to them to help speed their development, how to be in the right place at the right time, which I call the context of their business. And uh, finally, teaching them the process, teaching them, meaning the entrepreneurs, the process of how to get from here to there. If you do all of those five things, the money doesn't uh, have to be as great. The time isn't as long and the company gets to market faster. That's the, uh, you don't have to read the book now. That's the essence of the book. <laughs> and I rewrote it in 2006, and it's been uh, a, a fairly uh, grand seller since. And I've written 14 books in all. So those are the first two. That explains why. If uh, The first investment was uh, in that year, 1993. The second in 1994. There have now been 204. And uh, the grand... Uh, thing about angel investing, if you have the guts to be able to wait for seven to 12 years, my average is 11, to get good paybacks, the bad paybacks, the ones that go broke, happen within the first two to three years usually. And so uh, it's easy to take write-offs and hard to make money. But my average returns, including the sale of that computer company, 
are 81% per year annualized since 1990 when I sold that company. Almost like doubling a penny every year. I uh, I think I'm no mathematician, but I think those are solid returns. They're big numbers. <laughs> uh, there is a something to tell you about that. But if I take away that one sale, that's 23% per year as an angel investor from 1993. If I add the money that I gave to the bank, which is the real story here, and let them manage my money, admittedly telling them to be more conservative than usual because I was taking the risks, uh, it comes down to 23%. And if I isolate what the bank made for me between 1993 and this minute, is 5%. <laughs> but then again, I have to tell you that IRR, internal rate of return, is from the minute that you put the money into your investment to the minute that you take it out. And that stops the RRR. So I would make my big money, perhaps, hand it all to the bank to manage and start all over again with smaller investments and then add to them. So that's why IRR is nothing like total value of money returned, TVPI. Uh, so be careful. When people tell you their IRR is something high, like I just did, it's not how many dollars I made. You tried to do that by multiplying a penny every year. It really is much less than that. It uh, is the amount of multiple of your original return. I know this is getting a little geeky on you, but uh, that'll at least give you the answer. Well, you're not you're not getting geek on me because I, I know we've spoken in the past. I mean, we we just wrapped up a funding round myself, so I've been on the side of as as an entrepreneur receiving funds, and I also just made my first uh, my first angel investment myself. So uh, not 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 only not only are you not geeking, but you're 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 like preaching to the choir and says this is fascinating stuff. It's been it's been super fun to learn. I I I'd love to know. So you said you've done two hundred and three or two hundred and four deals, right? right. Mm -hmm. Have you like if you look back uh, on your career, have you had the most fun with the wins or the losses? I've learned the most from the losses. Yeah. And that's why I have a keynote and a TEDx speech that talks about them. <laughs> uh, but I've had the most fun with the wins because yeah. my deal for at least the first 20 years, maybe 15, was to coach the entrepreneur to make an investment, go on the board and uh, be the CEO coach. Sometimes, most of the time, the chairman of the board, because I've developed uh, experience in corporate governance that helps those companies grow. Uh, the last two of the liquidity events were in this month. <laughs> so it's still happening. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. One of them was very big. Uh, one of them was pretty big. I was the chairman of the board of the very big. I uh, helped strongly with the negotiation with the public buyer took the multiple of revenue to something in the stratosphere. And uh, we are all, including the founders, extremely happy with that result. The other, I was a passive investor with one of my funds, but it was nice to also get a big return from that one. So if you ask, it is the lessons learned that are the most important, but my average return is 11 years after the date of investment. That ain't easy. <laughs> um. Would you say, you know, so so in the 204 you've done, have you, well, this is an interesting question. Uh, how much do you think your name stands behind an investment you make? And I know that may be a funny question, but now that obviously you have a proven name uh, like far and wide in the angel investment space, do you think that sort of at the height of maybe when you were making angel investment deals, do you think that helped 
you know, sort of slingshot the the entrepreneur or the company further forward as well. I mean, it's one of those things when a startup has an idea and Sequoia backs them, instantly they go further beyond just because of Sequoia's name. Like how much how much do you how much do you think that factors into the success of of, of the business itself? I'm going to be humble here. Sorry, it's a, little, a little all over the place, but. Sure. I'm going to be humble here because the, hum, the humble answer is the truth. After the initial fundraising where people do join me, I don't think there is any benefit to the use of my name. Got it. Uh, and that includes in the negotiation of the sale because I've been actively involved in negotiation of the sale of not only the one this month, but of tw- a total of 24 plus this is 25. Uh, and that's where my value is added. Uh, when the company decides to make the run and I'm actively involved, usually as a board member, sometimes an advisory board member, I take over the negotiation on behalf of the entrepreneur. I have one great story about that. Not this one from uh, this month's return, but it goes back a while where the entrepreneur was ready to make the run. So I asked him as uh, the board member, how much does he want for his company? And he gave me a number. And I said, when we were engaging in the negotiation with the public buyer, all right, I want you, entrepreneur, to go home tonight and not come to the negotiation. And he looked at me and it was a very strange moment, but he said, okay, I'll do that if that's what you insist. And so we rented a very large meeting room in a hotel, put a table in the center of the meeting room with four seats. And I brought another board member. So we were on one side, they were on the other. And we started the negotiation after a few moments, minutes of pleasantries with my handing him a piece of paper showing him how our company, small as it was, was accretive to their earnings, which meant we had better numbers and therefore would improve to some small degree the value of the public company. He couldn't deny it. He saw it. He knew his numbers. He knew our numbers. And so I said, our company is worth, and I gave him a number that was three times as high as what the original founder was asking for. And the guy looked at me, thought for a minute, and said, you know, I've only been authorized to give you, and he gave me a number that was twice as high. Hmm. I believed him. So another 10 minutes of pleasantries, 45 minutes later, we had our deal, we shook hands, and it was done. When I phoned the, uh, the founder that night, there were cheers on the phone. And he still tells the story about how I doubled the value of his company on a single <laughs> night. But it was just a question of doing some research. Yep. I love that. I love mm-hmm. that. I love that. I love that. I want to go back to 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 a question. So I, I think, again, in, in, in our past conversation, I brought up my my a little similar. When I was 15, I started a little landscaping and lawn care company. That was my first business. Yeah. I had a chance to start it, grow it. And by the when I was a junior in college, I had a chance to sell it. It was just an amazing experience. And one of the questions I've been asked, whether it's on podcasts or just different conversations, you know, do you think the entrepreneurial mindset was always there, always in you, or do you think you learned it? And uh, I'd be really curious your perspective on that, seeing the fact that you started a company that obviously was wildly successful uh, at a young age as well, too. Was that always in there for you? Do you think you learned it? Do you think sort of uh, how, how do you think the whole entrepreneurial spirit started for you? My brother was a world-renowned architect, so that's a big one. Uh, I started these two businesses, the record company and later on the computer company. My family, I can't think of anybody who worked for anybody else. They were either professionals or entrepreneurs. My dad owned a furniture store. 
And we thought he was too conservative, my brother and I. And so we always chided him. Uh, the story for my dad is that he was offered the general store franchise in a brand new little theme park in Anaheim, California that uh, was $50,000. And dad said, who's ever going to drive from Los Angeles to Anaheim? And obviously you recognize Anaheim yep. as a location <laughs> for Disneyland. <laughs> uh, so it's just a uh, typical reaction perhaps, but we were still entrepreneurs from the very, very beginning. So as I approached these entrepreneurial prospects, and certainly there have been, boy, uh, 10,000 that I have seen in the form of people who have applied to me over the 25 years I've done this. Um, I look when I get a little deeper and I like what I see for flexibility and coachability. I was flexible because I did change several times, pivoted, and I certainly was coachable, but there was nobody there to coach me. Nobody, not even family members. So one of the things that I do or did is to plan to coach the entrepreneur. Uh, I think that's a very big value add, and I would love to see entrepreneurs who are only flexible and coachable and reject the others. Do you think the um, do you think the flexible and coachable side of things? I mean, do you think? I guess have you? Let me back that up. Do you do you think that most of the ideas out of the ten thousand entrepreneurs that have come your way, do you see more uh, more flexibility from from first time founders or second or third time founders or fourth or fifth or tenth or eleventh? But basically, the difference between first time founders and 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 people who have done it before. Without question, first-time founders, the ones that come right out of college with an idea. And I was investing in ideas very early on, and that's where I made a lot of money. I think you'll find that angel investors have moved on from that and invest now in first revenue companies rather than first idea companies. And that friends and family have to come in earlier and take the burden a little bit more for many of those companies that are just at the idea stage. But uh, yeah. Uh, I can determine flexibility and coachability at the very young entrepreneurial stage of very young entrepreneurs and enjoyed that process lots of times. It's, uh, it's interesting to see you say that or hear you say that I've, uh, you know, both in my own personal capital raises and now that we've, you know, so I, I, th I don't know if I told you this, but we wrapped up a 1.6 round a couple months ago, which is good to get that done. And I've had a few friends who are actually actively raising, and it seems like everybody's saying the same thing. Every every VC they get in front of has predominantly been very, very, very uh, significant revenue focused versus kind of early idea stage, uh, kind of as you alluded to. I'd love to hear your perspective on how that landscape has changed, maybe from when you first started to today of just the stage at which companies are investing in, the difference between angel and VC, has that has that relationship changed at all? Is it the same? What that looks like? I'd love to hear your perspective on the landscape of all that. Mad, you asked the right question. <laughs> occasionally, Dave, I get one right. Just occasionally, not all the time. <laughs> okay, you can, you did. So let me do that. When I first started this in '93, remember the term angel hadn't been invented yet. I was lucky that uh, in 1993 I went to a fairly well-known venture capitalist in the LA area who was turning down things that were too early stage. And I just basically said, give me your tired, your poor. I did the uh, whole uh, light your lamp bit from the Statue of Liberty and he, he bought it. And so he said, yeah, I have lots of companies I like, but they're far too early for me. And I said, give me them. I'll uh, 
help those that I like and present them back to you. And he liked the idea. I also went to the vice president of Silicon Valley Bank and said to her that very same thing. And she bought it because some of these companies were too early to be bankable. And I did the same thing. Establishing relationships on the first week, in the first week that I began this process of angel investing, it paid off and I got some great referrals. Some of those made me a lot of money over time. And uh, I later was able to capitalize on the term angel, um, which came into being about a year and a half or two later. Of course, Broadway angels were known forever, but it wasn't applied to investing till then. So that tells my early story. Now, if I look at where we were in 1998, when the Tech Coast Angels were formed, it was the second angel group that we knew of. The first was the Band of Angels in Silicon Valley. Uh, and we were formed to try and get the kind of uh, revenue opportunities presented to us uh, by applicants rather than by VCs, although that was something, and it worked. And so there were really, at that point, three things, three areas where entrepreneurs could find their money. Friends and family, which has always happened. Angel investors, now in groups or individual angel investors. And then finally, VCs. Obviously, then the public market or an acquiring. What has happened since is phenomenal and quite different. So today, angels have moved slightly into the revenue stage, as we spoke about earlier. Venture capitalists have gone further into the revenue stage, as you just mentioned yourself, because they know that as these funds got bigger, the first VC funds were 70 or 80 million at best. And now today, a billion dollar fund is common. So uh, they can't make small investments anymore. That's why you heard what you did. So what happened in between? It is former partners of, of uh, VC firms that are the primary people that started what we called micro VCs. They began funds of 70 and 80 million where they had come out of billion dollar plus funds. And they began putting money into mid-market opportunities, still greater than angel, sometimes early stage, but most of the time, a little bit more revenue than angel investors were able to get because the valuations had gotten too high. So we now have hundreds of, if not more, mid-market uh, micro VCs. Then at the same time came syndication of angel groups. So the average angel, angel group today can put about $450,000 on the average into a early stage deal. But by syndication, they can put in several million, sometimes more. I have one where we have a $6 million sum. And uh, that has taken a bit of this mid-market in the angel size. And then came all these other things. Uh, regulation C plus, uh, offerings that you can make on your own without the help of angel investors, or trying to form syndicates, or better yet, going to uh, some of the platforms that are available. All of those things didn't exist seven or eight years ago. Then along came, around that same time, uh, Y Combinator, Techstars, and many other accelerators. Incubators in the year 2000 or 1999 were kind of common, but mostly associated with universities. They all failed. All failed. But the accelerators were privately owned. They would take a piece of a young company, sometimes a very raw startup, 
And uh, they would put in maybe $25,000 as priming the pump and then help find money for the very first round. Accelerators still exist today. Uh, there are only three or four of them that we can name that are very successful. Uh, Airbnb, for example, and uh, some of the others like Uber were early uh, accelerator customers of Y Combinator. And that, of course, made Y Combinator uh, partners rich. So the uh, entire area has changed in the low and middle size. In the far end, beyond venture capital, that too has changed. Because now we have SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations, that are formed as blank check companies. They don't know what companies they'll invest in, but they raise their money. And uh, they have raised their money on the public marketplace. And then they go out and find some private companies that they can acquire. And then through that acquisition, make the public company more valuable or make the private company public by definition. And they didn't exist until a couple of years ago. And I can keep going because uh, private equity companies play a much larger role today. In years past, you had a few uh, that were very large. Now you have quite a few that are private equity companies. My companies have private equity companies knocking on their door at the rate of, in some cases, three or four a week. Uh, I am working toward one of my companies where I'm chairman now that has gotten one of those offers that is too good to pass. And we're just now beginning to hire the investment banker to help us make that run. But uh, these will happen. And so now look at that from what it used to be. Friends and family, angels, and venture. And then what I just described. It's become a very liquid opportunity if you can find the right place at the right time. It's uh, it's been it's been super fun. I mean, I both I, I I certainly deal with number one. Thank you for the the breakdown. All that it's awesome, and it's it's something that's it's been it's been really interesting to be in the game in the last like five or six years, both on the investment side, but also like being we're, we're out there raising capital. But I you know I I don't I don't get distraught when some VC says, hey, this is just too early. I actually try to learn from those and you know reach out to those people. Just you know keep them keep them keep them in the contacts. But to me, it's just been wildly fascinating to watch even the changes in the last four or five six years. And then obviously. You know, you have you have a few a little bit more experience on that side of, of things as well. I've always been curious if there's any like sort of and 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 you you can tell me this is a completely dumb idea, but when you look at really, really, really wealthy, you know, entrepreneurs that have, let's say, big enough that they got to the point where they have a family office and then you deal with Gen 2. So let's take the multi-billion dollar family. Typically, there's an interesting uh change of what happens with major families. So you get uh Hyper wealth entrepreneur started something, and then G two typically goes off and starts their own kind of a little bit more conservative businesses, but they have some success. And then you know G three, G four, G five end up being a lot less riskier than sort of the original entrepreneur. And I've always kind of looked at that philosophy and been curious if there's any of that that happens in the VC world where you had sort of the original founders or principals of these VC companies that were a lot more aggressive, you know, willing to go early stage. Now we're dealing with sort of the G2, G3, G4 people joining these VC funds and by nature being a little bit less riskier, riskier, riskier. And I don't know if that's true, but it's just been uh, comparison contrast. I've been tr trying to follow along and see if there's a pattern there. Anyways, I'd be okay, curious your thoughts so on that. It is true of families, absolutely, and still is today. 
you'll find an occasional entrepreneur coming out of the third generation, but you're going to find a lot of people skating on their wealth. Yep. And that's something we all worry about. Uh, we have conferences among those of us who are wealthy enough to have those conferences to talk about that very problem. Often we bring the second generation into those conferences to let them see what our problem is and how they might overcome it. Sometimes it works. Many times it doesn't. Uh, the formation of a family office, or better yet, a family foundation, is one way in which uh, this money is preserved. Uh, however, it isn't common, but it does happen. And when it does, that second generation sometimes gets involved, especially with a foundation, and finds themselves with a new purpose in life. So that's the family side. In the VC side, what you said is true also. Uh, I hate to say that the first fun of most of these people that are spinoffs from uh, venture capital companies that have been successful, uh, I have to say this, the first funds usually fail or at least don't do well. And there is no way around that. Um, I don't invest in first funds <laughs> for that I was, reason. I was about to say that's, uh, that's eye-opening in the sense that you may not want to invest in first funds. <laughs> yeah. My first fund was the family fund, and uh, it was immensely successful for a reason I'll explain in just a minute. My second fund was a vintage 1999 fund. You can't do worse because <laughs> the crash of 2000, which was evidence in the stock market crash of 2001, was... Uh, a killer for these 1999 funds. I can tell you that that fund made 18 investments. 15 of them were gone within two or three years because we didn't know what the internet was going to do. I invested in things I don't want to even describe today, but no one knew. One of the investments returned 110X, and that of course made the fund many times over. Another returned 3X after uh, 10 years. The first one was 11 years. Uh, and that was just icing on the cake. It turned out to be a fund that returned for its investors enough to be in the top 2% of all 1999 vintage funds. Who would have known? <laughs> Knowing that 98% of those funds uh, you know, were well below, and I don't know, 75% of those funds went broke. Those were the days. <laughs> Is it something like the glory days? I don't know what they call that. <laughs> yeah. And so we continue that discussion by saying that there were in the 70s and 80s, the people that formed the venture funds, and that includes Don Valentine and Sequoia, whom I knew well. He offered a $2 million investment in my computer company, my hotel computer company, which I was ready to take until the last minute when he changed the valuation by uh, a little bit, but enough for me to see that I have somebody I will not want to work with, even though he was the most famous person in the entire industry. And I refused his money. Now, I sold the company nine months later, and I'm glad I didn't take the money uh, because he wouldn't have allowed me to sell for sure. Yeah. But all of that was easy in those days because the pickings were light. And if you think of some of the early investments they made into companies like Intel and Oracle and Dell and others, you can tell that those are giant names today and these people made a lot of money. Those same VCs are having a much harder time today casting their net. And the young VCs that I'm talking about as the offspring are having an even harder time. So the average return 
uh, today for a VC is no longer the 23% that I'm still getting. Uh, but remember, I'm going back 25 years. And some of these are taking a long time. The one that I'm working on now that I'm mentioning as just hiring the investment bank is 15 years old. <laughs> so today, the average return, they hate to tell you, is 9% IRR, mm. not 23%. Wow. And this is not spoken of <laughs> loudly by the VC industry. It's because there are so many startups and so many false starts to find the Airbnb, the Uber, um, all of those that we hear about, that we celebrate, isn't anywhere near as easy as we thought it was and certainly was 20, 25 years ago. We can't expect the same returns today. There are too many companies. So do you think uh, this is maybe miss, this is maybe like a sports reference comparison, but you know, Michael Jordan probably wouldn't have made that good of a, uh, that good of a coach. Do you think uh, entrepreneurs in the most part are, are good at investing? So when you see entrepreneurs then flip to the uh, then flip to the angel world or the VC world, do you make, do you, do you, in your experience, maybe anecdotal, or maybe there's data to back this, but w would you say that you've seen entrepreneurs be good investors or bad investors? Hmm. I don't think I have a good answer for that. I can tell you about angels and yeah. what they make because the Angel Capital Association publishes every year statistics uh, primarily driven by three angel groups that keep deep statistics, including mine, Tech Coast Angels. And uh, I can quote those numbers and they're viable, but they have assumptions that you have to be very careful about. For example, the Tech Coast Angels numbers are wonderful. They are a 23% return going back to 1998, but you had to have invested $25,000 in every single deal that the Tech Coast Angels invested in. Nobody would have done that. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so there are just lots of what ifs in these, in these uh, kinds of descriptions. But angel investing still today, even with what I've just told you, is returning enough that uh, with the stories I've told you and the number I just gave you from at least uh, the ACA uh, generates more revenue by far, revenue, more income by far than uh, a simple bank or uh, e ETF investment that most people make. Right, right. No, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to ask this question, although I kind of hate this question. Uh, so <laughs> I want to I acknowledge that. Okay. Do you do you think that there is a single ingredient crossover or similar qualities among uh, successful entrepreneurs or not? And then I guess I'm going to add the fact that you've looked at ten thousand deals or ten, and probably more than that, but ten thousand entrepreneurs, if you will, and you've made two hundred four investments. So obviously, you saw something in those two hundred four that you didn't see in the other ten thousand. Do you think? In general terms, there's sort of a certain type of DNA that's easy for you to describe or something that you see time and time again that proves to be successful as far as entrepreneurs go. My first piece of advice to uh, investors in the angel community is invest in companies and industries you know. Now, I violate that because I manage three funds today and they're angel funds and a third of their investments are in med tech or in pharma. And I have no knowledge of medtech and pharma. I rely on my co-investors for that. The investment uh, management group is a group of five, two of which have deep knowledge in that area. So and number one, invest in only things you know. Uh, that's a really big one to say. Number two is uh, you have to diversify. So the first thing we tell people is don't ever 
plan to invest more than 10% of your liquid net worth. I've told you how long it takes for me to get an average return. I don't want to hear people quitting after two or three years because they haven't made money because they won't. And by playing the Monte Carlo simulation, long ago, we determined that the average number of investments you have to make to break even on the average is 25. So a lot of people rush to get 25 by making bad investments as well as good just to get their 25 in within a couple of years. And of course, that's wrong too. So there are a lot of rules <laughs> and a lot of pitfalls, um, many of which I've learned over time, but <laughs> the newer investors are much more likely to fall into those pits. Yeah, I love that. And I, uh, I would say that we probably could have five or six hours of, uh, of podcast content of just all the stories and lessons, both good and bad that you've learned through the years. So maybe, 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 maybe for next time, but I know you're doing some amazing stuff right now with your, with your blog and the content that you're pushing out. I'd love to, uh, give you an opportunity. I'd love to, you know, for, if you would be willing to share a little bit more about kind of all the stuff that you're releasing and the content that you're pushing out for both entrepreneurs and investors. I have uh, issued 350 weekly blogs so far. <laughs> Each of them has a story and a moral. The story is usually of one of the companies that I've invested in and the moral that I have obtained or learned from uh, the transaction. And so uh, these are in, in my side, a lot of fun to write, but I'm getting feedback from a lot of people that they are so cogent that they pass them on to others, which is what I want to hear. So they go out to 200,000 people a week. I can't tell you how many read because some of these are being passed on to some very well-known websites and republished uh, most of the time or if not every week. And they republish inside a frame in their own website. So I don't get the stats. But I do know that they're pretty well read. If 50,000 of those 200,000 go out from emails, I have deep stats for those. 20,000 go out by RSS feed, and it is those 20,000 that generate those that republish. So you'll find me, for example, on smallbiz.com, which is a publication of Office Depot Office Max, run by Myron Tarkanian, uh, the famous basketball player, uh, later coach. Um, and uh, another, if you're in Southern California, is republished every week at the top of their page by SoCal Tech, which goes to the tech CEOs in Southern California, and on and on and on. So uh, you can, this is the uh, pitch, you can get these weekly blog entries by way of an email free every week, Tuesday mornings at 8.30, by going to Berkus.com, B-E-R-K-U-S, like Sam, Com. And on the in the middle of the page on the right hand side is a uh, sign up for Dave's weekly newsletter. And uh, that'll get you my stories every week. It comes from my real email address. I hate to say this, but it's been going on for too many years not to. And you can reply to that email. And I actually answer those emails that uh, you send in reply. <laughs> so other than the 200,000 emails that you send and probably have thousands and thousands and thousands on a given day that you have to respond to, Dave, for you, what, what would you say uh, is, is what's keeping you, you know, getting, getting you out of bed in the morning? What is it that kind of lights your lights, you know, lights your soul on fire in the best way possible? What is it that's, uh, you know, keeping you excited on the, you know, day-to-day -day stuff? Obviously you're doing, you've done some amazing things, but I'd love just to like, throughout the course of your career, what has it been and whether it's the same or it's changed now, but I'd love to know kind of what, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Dramatically changed. 
Uh, remember I told you earlier, I snuck it in there. I'm 80 years old. <laughs> I was uh, going to say 26 or 27 was my guess. But, uh. <laughs> okay. So from the beginning of this, when I was searching under rocks for good deals, and there were a lot of them to be had then because there, there wasn't a lot there was a lot of competition, uh, until the angel groups uh, having taken away from me some of the responsibility of finding and performing due diligence and uh, letting me help by leading deals within the angel community and therefore uh, becoming, in many cases, chairman of the board, which I've done now, boy, 25 times maybe. I've been on more than 40 boards. I'm uh, now only on four. No, I'm on six boards and chairman of four because of the sale this month of one where I was chairman. And uh, another where I'm chairman is the one we're starting to make the run I just described as well. So for me, you've asked what I do and what gets me up in the morning. Today, I hate to say it, maybe I love to say it, I am dealing with all the companies that are still in my portfolio, especially those where I'm deeply involved in, and helping them to see when and how to make the run toward a liquidity event, a sale of the company. Uh, in none of these cases is a public offering in uh, the opportunity mix. They're all too small, 100 million or below, and uh, it's probable that I will help to move these companies toward a liquidity event in many cases in the next two or three or four years. That's what gets me up. I love that. And then other than obviously the 18 to 20 laps you swim every day, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, first of all, my pool is 80 degrees plus. So you got to like that. <laughs> yeah. Don't hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it takes a lot of water that evaporates out of that pool to keep it high. Oh, I'm but, sure. Uh, that is part of the game, especially in California. We worry about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But you asked me what, and I told you what, so there you are. No, I love that. Dave, thank you so much. Um, I know we'll, we'll include links to books and obviously the blog as well, too. Uh, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? These are great times. Uh, we're coming out of COVID. I know I worry as much as everybody else does about remaining masks or not, and about uh, having lunches like you did uh, a lot before COVID having personal meetings instead of that dreaded Zoom. Uh, it's all part of the process. The wonderful thing about this is the market has continued to increase. The entrepreneurial community has continued to get money. And uh, we are in an area of uh, at least my life right now where I'm having a good time. And I'm imagining that many of my contemporaries are too. I love that. That's uh, that's a positive light, and uh, where the media is dark, that's a positive light that we can we can turn to. So thank you. Well, Dave, okay. this podcast's been awesome. Seriously, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Okay, Matt. Well, have a good time and find other guests. Love it. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at thematbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, 
or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way and don't be afraid to share the Map Action Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye. <music>